Let's turn back this morning to the book of Colossians chapter 1, and we'll read together in a moment verses 15 through 20. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, though what we will spend our time on today is going to be the passage of Scripture between 15 and 17. And so we're going to give you these verses out loud, but then we'll spend our time together actually on these first verses of what we will read together in your hearing. Just in review, the passage of Scripture that we're undertaking a study of, the portion of God's Word, rather, that we're undertaking a study of is Paul's letter to the Colossians. He writes to a congregation in Colossae or Colossae, depending on which pronunciation of that that you want to use. This is a faithful church. Apparently, Paul has never been here. So this is one that is probably an offshoot of a church that he did pastor. It's believed that it came from the church at Ephesus. It's pastored by a man named Epaphras. This is a very loving group of people, a very faithful group of people. And Paul writes to them to encourage them and commend them. But he also writes to them, as we'll see in some messages we look forward to, warning them against troubling mentalities in their world at that moment, specifically things such as philosophy and angel worship. Perhaps from what we read today, Paul is wanting to help them avoid diminishing the Lord Jesus Christ in their mind, in their teaching, and in their theology. And so we have spent some three messages in this series through the book of Colossians. Message one was simply the introductory remarks that Paul wrote to this church and a statement on the spread of the gospel, that the word of God, the gospel of Christ, has now gone into the known world by the time that Paul writes this. It had spread through Asia Minor. It had spread in portions of northeast Africa, and it had hit Western Europe. And so the word of God is spreading through. The gospel of Christ is spreading through the known world at the time. Within a century, this message of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, it it had spread like wildfire through the known world. Message two, we considered Paul's heart in prayer. When Paul prayed, to God for these people, what sort of things did Paul pray for? And as you know, as you might remember, he prays for their spiritual growth. That's what we want to see in God's people. We want you to come to God's house. We want you to hear the word. We want you to worship. And by the way, that's a part of it that you can't get online is the worship. When you sing praises to God with a group of people, we want you to be built up in Christ and lifted up in Christ. We want you to be blessed And to grow. That's the purpose of our ministry here is that God's people would grow. Message three, we considered a concise summary of salvation. God's saving of sinners from their sin, making them worthy to stand before him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When they had nothing in and of themselves that they could offer unto God, their righteousnesses, even being as filthy rags, through the Lord Jesus Christ... We have the blessing of being allowed into the presence of a holy God, though we are still yet here in this world, sinners, though we know we look forward to the day of the resurrection, when we'll be fully conformed to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to think about this. 
We've spent now three messages, which is roughly three hours. Our, our sermons here are the length of your average high school or college class. Isn't it amazing that we expect people to spend, you know, three to four hours a week studying algebra to learn how to do equations, but we think we can get theology in 15 minutes on the Lord's Day? Does that not boggle the mind? Anyway, three hours or so we've spent on 14 verses. What a weighty, powerful, condensed book this book of Colossians is. It's not the longest Pauline epistle. It isn't the shortest, but it's certainly far from being the longest. It's one of his shorter writings. And yet, to expound upon the things that Paul speaks about or writes about, it takes hours upon hours. And if you haven't noticed, we rarely actually finish a sermon. We kind of summarize the end of them. Much more could be said at the end of these hours that we spend together from God's Word about these great eternal truths. In the language that we consider today, some of the most beautiful, powerful, Christ-exalting statements in all of Scripture are found in these verses, in these passages. We'll consider today verses 15, 16, and 17, and we probably won't have time to look into everything, certainly everything that we could say about these statements that Paul makes. Our message this morning is entitled, The Real Christ. And as we read these passages together, I want you to just absorb them, learn them, study them. Repeat them. Make them a part of your vocabulary. Hide them in your heart because you will not find more Christ-exalting language than what we'll read together here today. Let's begin in verse 15 with our reading. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? Now to Paul's. This word who there, this is not a question, but this word who is a pronoun referring back to the antecedent, God's dear Son or Christ. And so Paul has already written about our salvation that we have in Christ. Christ has made us, the Father hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of light in His Son. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son in whom, in his dear Son, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And here in verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. And so the who there is Christ. Christ, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him, by Christ, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, whether visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. 
It pleased the Father that in him all fullness should dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Now, we read to that point to give you the full scope of the thought that Paul is expressing here, but we'll spend our time speaking on verses 15 through 17 today. Now, as we introduce this passage to you today... What I want to draw your attention to first is how structured and organized these statements are. Now, this isn't to say that any other portion of Scripture is less structured or organized. Certainly, that's not the case. But notice how specifically structured and organized these statements are. In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. It's concise, it's structured, it's organized, And there's a reason why. If you notice how organized these sentences are, many lingual scholars assert that this is actually an early statement of faith among the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ in the first century. In fact, a statement of faith that is believed to have in the original language been written in hymn form. Now, this wouldn't be unprecedented. You know the language, great is the mystery of godliness. God was justified in the spirit. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, ministered to by angels, preached unto the Gentiles, received up into heaven from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. That is an early Christian hymn. And it's written in a form of hymnody as a creedal statement or a a statement of faith. We have a statement of faith here at Flint River. You say, what's a statement of faith? We have a giant seven-foot-tall monument in the churchyard, which is our statement of faith. If you think primitive Baptists don't believe in statements of faith, you've obviously never been here because we have a giant one that looks like a tombstone out front. And so it's just there. We believe. What, what is that? That's a statement of faith. You notice how organized all those statements are? We believe. And it goes through what we believe about God, what we believe about His Word, what we believe about salvation, what we believe about mankind, what we believe about the end of the world and the resurrection of the dead and our final state with Him in glory. And then we even find some things in that statement of faith. We find some things about ecclesiology, church practice, the way that we are to function as a church, the ordinances of the church. That's a statement of faith. Here in Colossians chapter 1, lingual scholars, because of the structure of these words in Greek, it's believed that this is actually perhaps a hymn that the early church would sing together. Hymn singing is something that's so very important to the church, and those that hold to the regulative principle, which we hold to, we do things in our church that are depicted or commanded in Scripture, and we don't feel authorized to add to or take away from that. We don't do things that are not in Scripture. And so if you, if you notice the things that we do today in service, it seems to be very limited to things that maybe they did walking around with the Lord Jesus or the apostles on the hillsides of 
the Middle East in the first century, there's a very important reason for that. It's intentional. We do what we find commanded or depicted in Scripture. Sometimes those who rigidly hold, as we do, to the regulative principle of worship believe that we are not authorized to sing hymns because the early church obviously sang psalms. And so that would be the exclusive psalmity position that we only sing psalms. Now, by the way, we're actually working on a psalter to be used in public worship because we need to sing psalms. Have you noticed here for about three years we've began our services every single Sunday with the reading of psalms? What are the psalms? It's the hymn book of ancient Israel. It's music that God inspired. Now, there's a lot of worship tunes and music in today's culture that I'm not comfortable singing. There's a few of them in our hymnal that I don't think we should sing because they're not doctrinally sound. And we usually don't sing them. I'm not as bad as some preachers. There are preachers that I know that have a big stamp. And the stamp says, not suitable for public worship. And they'll stamp every single hymn that's not suitable for public worship. And when the church flips over to maybe Gethsemane, Gethsemane's not a sound song. I don't know why it's in there. You see the big stamp, not suitable for public worship. I'm not that bad, but I'm pretty close. Fairly particular about what we sing. And when that one's called out, I will intentionally change the word Gethsemane to Calvary because the hymn Gethsemane seems to place redemption in Gethsemane, not on Calvary, where obviously redemption was accomplished at Calvary. So we don't sing that here. There's other ones that maybe are not suitable for public worship. Uh, Precious Memories doesn't mention the Lord Jesus Christ or God. Now, I'm, I'm fine with that at funerals and family reunions, but Precious Memories is not a church service song because it's about precious memories, and we're not here today for precious memories. I've known churches that gather on Sunday for precious memories, but that's not why we're here. Why are we here? Why are you here? (laughs) Well, I'm here because mom dragged me on Sunday morning. We're here because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we sing needs to point to him and exalt him. The Psalms are so important to the church because when you're singing Psalms, you know what you're singing is theologically accurate. Why? Because God wrote it. We've been undertaking a series on the life of King David, who's the author of the majority of the Psalms. And on his deathbed, he talks about the fact that the Spirit spoke by him. The Spirit was in his tongue. The Psalms are inspired of God and in every way theologically accurate. Can't say the same for some hymns, but that doesn't mean that we don't sing hymns. How do I know that? I know that because there are more than one example. There's more than one example in the New Testament of language that obviously comes from first century Christian hymns. Great is the mystery of godliness. Or here, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Now, you say, well, you said it's a statement of faith, but then you also said that it's a hymn. Is it a statement of faith or is it a hymn? Hymns ought to be statements of faith. But at the same time, music is a learning tool. If you put words to music, you remember the words more than if you simply speak the words or hear the words aloud. For example... If I were to say, Jesus loves me, this I know. How many of you could finish that sentence? Every single one of you. Or let's say if I said, there is a name, I, and I just stop. 
Well, what would you want to finish that with? Love to hear. Why? Because it's put to music and you remember it. Do you ever get a song stuck in your head? It's called an earworm and you just can't get it out. Does that ever happen with random sentences? Do you ever get like the definition of the laws of thermodynamics stuck in your head? Jesse's nodding, but aside from Jesse, uh, anybody else here, you know, just randomly repeat statements such as that. But how often do you have a song stuck in your head? Why is that? Because we are designed to remember things that are put to music because God utilizes that for teaching his people truth. And so the early church apparently utilizes this reality to train people truth who couldn't just go down to Dollar Tree and pick up a New Testament. So what you could do is you could learn a statement of faith put to music, it buries itself in your mind, and then you can repeat it, you can sing it, you can teach it to two-year-old children. How many children in the world, if you began singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, they would be able to sing along with you, and they can't read, they can't write, they don't have a lot of the Word of God committed to memory, and yet immediately when those words are spoken, they know exactly what you're saying and they can follow along. If I were simply to say, amazing, and you knew that I'm talking about a hymn, what would you, what would you do? You could finish that even if you've never stepped foot in a church. Amazing what? Grace. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. Why? Because you've memorized it. It's a song. You've memorized it. It's music. This is believed to be an early hymn slash statement of faith. And again, the reason that statements of faith were often put to hymn form, it's believed, so people could remember them. It's a powerful teaching tool. There are some modern hymns that have put God's Word to music. And to me, I have the opposite reaction to that. It, it almost ruins the passage for me if they put it to a tune I don't like. Because then all of a sudden I'm reading through Paul's writings to Timothy and I get to, and I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able. And the next thing you know, I'm like, I don't want to read it to that tune. But it's so ingrained in my brain that I can't but read it in that tune. Are you the same way? Probably so. This is an early statement of faith or Christian hymn, and this is a teaching tool. By the way, what does Paul say in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 concerning singing in the church? That we are to speak to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our heart. What we sing is to teach you sound theology just as much as the gospel preaching is to teach you sound theology. I have a feeling you remember the hymns a little bit more about the specific words that I say each and every Sunday. When we sing, Man of Sorrows, what a name. Oh, the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. You might be singing that for the next week. You're not going to be able to repeat this message verbatim. You may not stay awake through it all. Those of us that rode here from... My home this morning, we were up till after 3 in the morning at a band competition. If you notice, I've been drinking coffee all morning. So this sermon is powered by God's grace and McDonald's brand coffee. So 
This to me, it may seem like slow motion, but to me this is about as fast as we can go. It's powered by a lot of caffeine. You might not survive the entire sermon awake, but you'll be able to go home humming that hymn. All right. So to the specifics of what Paul has written for us here, referring to Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. We want to take these statements, an individual statement at a time. First of all, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, when we in our Western world think about God, if I were to tell you today, think about God, I have a feeling many Americans, many Westerners would picture maybe the scene from the painting from the Sistine Chapel. What, what is the painting of the Sistine Chapel? You, you've all seen it, even if you don't know that you have. It's got a Caucasian old guy with long, curly, white hair pointing down at another Caucasian young dude reaching up, and there's about this much space between their fingers, and that's supposed to be artistically representing this small but eternally separating distance between God and man. And by the way... Adam, the word Adam means red. He probably didn't have the same complexion I have, hint, hint. But we love to reinvent those things in our image, right? You know, God made man in God's own image, and man has been trying to reinvent God in man's own image ever since. God is what, according to this verse? Invisible. Christ is the image of the invisible God. More on that in a moment. But I want to focus first on the fact that God is invisible. God the Father in glory is not an old guy with a long flowing white beard. Maybe kind of bulky, little bit extra weight around here because all the old Westerner paintings like to put a little extra weight because back then if you were wealthy you had extra weight and everybody else was starving to death and was skinny. But God in Scripture is invisible. In the book of John chapter 4, Jesus in conversing with the woman at the well, this is a Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus is a Hebrew man, a Jewish man, the Hebrews, and the, Jew, uh, the Hebrews and the Samaritans had no dealings. Hebrew men would not speak to Samaritans. They considered them to be initially turncoats as the kingdom. Samarians are descendants of the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, after Judah and Israel split from two separate nations. Samaria early on, the northern kingdom Israel early on, corrupted the worship of God. They didn't worship in Jerusalem because they didn't want the king of Judah and the worship there in Judah, steering them back towards reunification. They were done with Judah ruling over them. And so because of that, you have great prejudice between the Jews and the Samaritans. But guess what Jesus does? He must needs go through Samaria. He goes to a well. He asks a woman of Samaria to give him something to drink in a day When Jews didn't talk to Samaritans, why do you think the parable of the Good Samaritan is so powerful? Because Samaritans were looked down upon by Jesus' audience, and Jesus is telling them basically that your religious people are good for nothing 
And there are people out here in the world like this Samaritan that you look down on that are actually better than you. Which is amazing if you understand it in its correct light. Jesus goes and as he's conversing with this woman, he makes the statement that God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. This is John 4 and verse 24. God is a spirit. God is not an old guy sitting on a throne with a long flowing beard in heaven. God is a spirit. You say, what about passages of Scripture that talk about God with human characteristics? God is invisible. He's everywhere present and nowhere absent. There's no escaping God. Let me just say this, the terrifying thing about hell isn't that you're separated from God from eternity. No, that God torments you for eternity. God is present as the tormentor in hell. Now, you're separated from his blessings and presence and in terms of fellowship, but God is everywhere and nowhere absent. He's invisible. He's a spirit, okay? That is to say, God lacks physical form. Now, there are people who believe that God has a physical form, and that is doctrinally and theologically unorthodox. God had no physical form until the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, took flesh. He was incarnate. The Word was made flesh. He took upon Him the form of flesh. Jesus became a human being. The Son of God became a human being. Jesus of Nazareth, and at that moment, has physical form. But until the incarnation, listen to me, this is important, God had no physical form. Why then does Scripture sometimes describe God as a man-appearing entity with hands and feet and eyes. Think about Isaiah 59. God looks and there's no one to bring salvation, so his own right arm brought salvation. Right arm being a symbol of strength, which is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ in Isaiah 59. Why would God be described as having a right arm if God is invisible and God is a spirit? This is a lingual device, a lingual tool, referred to as anthropomorphic language. That is to say, God is described as having human-like traits for our understanding, but until Jesus was made flesh, until the Word was made flesh, God had no physical form. Everything physical was created in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, that's time, God, that's force, energy, created the heaven and the earth, that's matter and space. Everything we know in this universe was created in the very beginning of time. God had no physical form. God was all spiritual, spirit. And so, as such, Paul refers to him as the invisible God. When God is described with human-like traits, hands, feet, etc., what do we read of in the the book of Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. He sits on the right hand 
and then on the left, the sheep and the goats, respectively. This is referred to as anthropomorphic language, and it simply helps us understand God, but we don't take that literally and rigidly. Similarly, God is described in the terms of a hen protecting her brood with her wings. Is God a hen? Does God have wings? No. God isn't a hen. God does not have wings. That's simply a metaphor to help us understand traits of God, that is to say that he protects and defends his children. But it's not to be taken literally, rigidly, as it were. God is the invisible God. And I want that to be communicated very clearly to you today, that God has no physical form until the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be very important in a moment. When Paul writes this, what exactly is his point in communicating to us that God is invisible? That God is everywhere present, nowhere absent, but He's the invisible God. He's a spirit. They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. That He's not Zeus on Mount Olympus or Jupiter. And think about it, that was the predominant religion in the Roman Empire in that day. We love our, our Marvel films, right? It's very similar to the Norse gods with Thor and Odin and, and Loki. It kind of looks like my family get-togethers, you know. you got Dad Odin, you got Elijah and Ethan, Thor and Odin, uh, Thor and Loki, and I guess Lydia gets to be Hela, I don't know. But anyway, there are all these physical beings that can throw lightning bolts and go down and get into a fist fight with a bad guy. But listen, that's not what the Bible presents about God. He's a spirit. God is invisible, the invisible God. What is his point with saying that God is invisible? Well, read what's on each side of that. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. To see the face of Christ is to see God. To see Christ is to see God. What do you mean by see Christ? In the book of John chapter 14, verses 7 through 9, Jesus is asked this very question by one of his disciples named Philip. Jesus in verse 6 said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. From henceforth you know him and you have seen him. Philip says, Lord, Master, Show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Now, if, if you're a student of Jesus, and Jesus is there teaching you personally firsthand in the first century, and he says that he's the way to the Father, and if you've known him, you've known the Father, that might be your response. Well, show us the Father then, and it'll do. It sufficeth us. Now, in, other, in other words, that's good enough. Just show us God. Let us look at him. Now, that was a question that Moses had as he was receiving the law in the book of Exodus. He says, Lord, show me your glory. And God says, no man can see all of my glory and live. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock, and after I pass by, I'll remove my hand, and you can view my hinder parts as I pass by. Again, anthropomorphic language. I'll let you see my glory from behind as it has passed by. You get a glimpse of it. You just get a glimpse of it. No man can see him and live in this sinful form. 
That's why glorification in the resurrection is necessary. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it'll do. Jesus says, How have I been with you so long, and yet thou hast not seen me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? There are a plethora of cults over the past 2,000 years that will tell you Jesus never claimed to be divine or deity or God, but he just said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. To see Christ is to see God. Think about what John wrote in 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. John says we got to touch God incarnate as we beheld him in this world, Jesus of Nazareth, the second person of the Godhead, incarnate in human flesh. Now, by the way, this necessitates a little bit of an understanding of the Trinity. And just for the sake of it, God, the Godhead, the eternal God, the one true and living God, God Almighty, Jehovah in the Old Testament, God exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. And yet, God is not divisible in three pieces. In other words, the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And yet, the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Holy Spirit. There are three, and yet these three are one. And you say, that sounds contradictory. I can't understand it because he's God. And as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways above our ways. We can't understand in this world what God is in his fullness. But in the resurrection, we shall know him even as we are known. There will come a day when you can understand the great mysteries of who God is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, the Godhead, three persons, co-equal, co-eternal of the same substance. The Son, eternally begotten by the Father, always being the Son. And the Holy Spirit, proceeding from Father and Son. Now, I'm quoting other language that you find in Scripture and in old creeds and confessions, and they're important to read and to study because... There were wars within Christianity that were fought over these doctrines. And with the controversy came precision. With the precision comes the safe way to explain these things. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son, Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate Son of God, is the image of the invisible God. To see Christ is to see God. Now, by the way, have you seen Christ? You might say, no, I've I've never looked upon him. I lived 2,000 years after he walked this world. But if you know him in your heart and you love him and you believe on the Son of God, then you have seen Christ. You've seen him by the eye of faith because he's within you. He has raised your soul from death and sin to life in Christ. He has entered your heart and you know him. And every single one of his children will know him from the least to the greatest. You've seen Christ by the eye of faith. And when you saw him, you saw even his father. 
because to see him is to see his father. And so Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The book of Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says he is the express image of his person. The express image of the person of the Godhead. The word express there means manifest. And so as you think about the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, God made flesh, the Son of God is the express image, the manifest image of God. In fact, later in this book, we'll talk about the fact that in Christ dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All the fullness of the Godhead. Think about that. At one point in his life, contained in a tiny baby laid in a manger in a city, Bethlehem, with no room for him, dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. There was a time before Jesus was born. And by the way, before Jesus was born, Jesus was Jesus. That, that little embryo. In him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And he was Jesus before he was born, by the way. And you were you before you were born. That's why life in the womb is precious. And that's why we dare not ever take it. In that little baby dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead. There's a beautiful quote that I read in John Trapp's commentary. John Trapp was a Puritan. I wanted to share it with you today on this particular verse. And give your ears as we read this man from centuries ago express this truth to us. Milk is not so like milk as the son is like the father. Milk is not so like milk as the son is like the father. What does that mean, milk is not so like milk? Milk is milk. If it's milk, it's milk. And yet milk is not so like milk as the son is the father. In other words, to quote ancient theologians, he is of the same substance, the same essence as the father. Father, son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, they are God. He is the only God, singularly, and yet at the same time, Trinity, triunity. Milk is not so like milk as the son is like the father, by whom also God, otherwise invisible, is manifested to us. Have you ever thought about that? The only way that we see, in a physical sense, God, as far as we being humanity, is as they beheld the Son of God as He walked in this world. By whom also God, otherwise invisible, is manifested to us. And here... He that would see God must set the eyes of faith upon the manhood of Christ. Now, Christ was God incarnate, but Christ was also God incarnate, meaning he's also man. He's a human being with bone and blood and skin and hair. As a baby, he grew. He was fed by his mother. He was changed by his mother. He learned to walk. He learned to speak. He felt pain. He felt sorrow, he felt hunger, he felt thirst. And we see all of that revealed in the Gospels. The manhood of Christ. For he that seeth the Son seeth the Father. When a man looketh into a crystal glass, 
It casteth no reflection to him. If you look through the windows into the outer world, there's no reflection there is what he's saying when he says crystal. It casteth no reflex to him or reflection. But put steel upon the back of it and it will cast a reflex or a reflection. So put the humanity as a back of steel to the glass of the Godhead and it casteth a comfortable reflection to us. As without this, if we look upon God, we indeed see small sparks of His glory to terrify and amaze us. But in Christ, God and man, we behold the lively and express face of God. Not anymore as a fearful and terrifying judge, but a most gracious and loving Father to comfort and refresh us. John Trapp, the Puritan theologian. Christ is the express image of the person of the Godhead. In Him was all the fullness dwelt. He is the second person of the Godhead incarnate, the express image of God's person. Now, by the way, that's about 45 minutes, and we've covered half of one verse. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. What does that mean? Well, what it doesn't mean is that Jesus is the first thing that God ever created. That's the heresy of Arianism. It is indeed a heresy. It is not true. It is not right. And again, if you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. There are a multitude of verses that we could share with you that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was the very incarnate Word of God. Even the language, the incarnate Word of God, proves that, and that's simply quoting John chapter 1. We're going to go through Zechariah, uh, the latter portions of Zechariah, in our next Wednesday night Bible study. Jehovah says in Zechariah, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Who is Jehovah? God. When Jesus was pierced, they look upon Jehovah whom they have pierced. What then does it mean that he's the firstborn of every creature? First of all, Christ as the beginning of creation. Revelation 3.14 is a passage that you could consider in conjunction with this one. In speaking to the church of the Laodiceans, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. When he says, I'm the beginning of the creation of God, he doesn't mean that I'm the first thing created, but that I am the root or origin or originator of everything that is made. He is the active cause of existence. Jesus is the creator. And so when he's the firstborn of every creature, he is the beginning of every creature. He's the beginning of creation. John chapter 1, after saying that the Word was the Creator, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with, with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made, what do we learn in that passage? We learn that Christ is the creator. All existence is here because of Christ. John goes on to say that he lights every man that comes into the world. Life comes from Christ. 
either in a physical sense or a spiritual sense, all life traces its root to Christ because he is the beginning. When you read that language, in the beginning God, I want you to think in your mind, in the beginning God equals Christ because he's the beginning of the creation of God, the firstborn of every creature. Moving quickly, Christ is the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn of new creatures and resurrected saints. In Romans chapter 8 and other places, we read about Jesus being the firstborn from the dead. Jesus, because he rose again, let me tell you, the reason we're here today worshiping God on this beautiful Sunday morning, when some of us were up till nearly four in the morning, is because Jesus rose from the dead. Every other religious teacher in the history of the world died, was buried, and decomposed in a tomb. And yet Jesus Christ rose again on the third day. And that's why we're here. He's the firstborn from the dead because he died and rose again. Though we were dead in trespasses and in sins, he has quickened us together in soul to be alive in Christ. We believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead. Ephesians 1.19. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Ephesians 2.1. The life you have that enables you to believe in the sweet name of Jesus Christ is a byproduct of being raised from spiritual death. And he's the firstborn from the dead. Because of his resurrection, that same power is given you in the new birth. And beyond that... Oh, marvel not at this, the hour cometh when all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. They shall come forth. They that have done good under the resurrection of life, they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation, John 5. Because of the resurrection of Christ, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, every single saint looks forward to being resurrected, raised again from the dead, conformed to the image of Jesus, raised like unto Christ in that last day will be raised again incorruptible. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. We will be raised in like manner. And lastly, about Christ as the firstborn, Christ being the firstborn of every creature, of every creature under the sun. Now remember, Jesus took upon him the form of flesh. He existed for eternity. He is eternal. And yet... There's a man, Jesus of Nazareth, that was conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin named Mary, came into this world and dwelt some 33 and a half years. Paul is a Hebrew who grew up under the framework of the Old Testament. What special rights and privileges do the firstborn children have? The firstborn son is heir, heir of all things. When Jesus is the firstborn of every creature, that statement is also saying that he is heir of this universe. He's first before me. You know, sometimes I think I run the universe. And sometimes you think you run the universe. And if you ever doubt that, spend enough time with any other human being and we come to the conclusion real quick that we all think we run the universe. Because we want it my way. Frank Sinatra got famous singing that song. I did it my way. Well, we all want it our way. Burger King says, have it your way. But God says that Christ is the firstborn of every creature. He's the heir. He's the one in charge. 
Prophetically, so, so many scriptures talk about him being the heir of the throne of David, seated at the right hand of God today, where he reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the firstborn. He's the heir. Verse 16, shifting gears to overdrive. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Now, I've quoted very poorly John chapter 1 already. I want to go read it for you as we think about the fact that by him were all things created. Christ Jesus The Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, the Word of God that was made flesh is the creator of all things. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Fast forward, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, verse 14 of John chapter 1, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. All things were created by him. Now let's put a pause right here. Though fewer and fewer Americans are Christians in the sense that they go to church, they Worship God, they give the first fruits of their week every week, the first day of the week in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. That number's diminishing. But there are far more in this country that simply claim to believe in some generic God that they believe created us. The founding fathers were that way. Now, we have this revisionist history of all of them being fine, outstanding church members. Some of them were, some of them were deists, some of them were Freemasons. They were not all Orthodox. Christians. Deism was a very famous form of religion in the days of the founding of this country. I was listening to a podcast recently about church history, and we came to American Christianity, and that was a thing that was expounded upon. Men like Thomas Jefferson, for instance, would claim to be Christian, but reject the miracles of the Bible, reject the virgin birth, reject the resurrection. That's not Christian. That's not Christian. What that was was deism. We believe the God of the Bible that these men kind of knew and and wrote some things they believed about, but as it relates to actually believing this, well, we we really don't, don't believe what this says, those people would say. We can be as Christians affected by deism because we would put a period where Paul puts a comma. Okay, if you know in Greek there wasn't a comma. Suffer with me. For by him were all things created, period. And people will say, oh, yeah, he created the world, and then God steps back, and he just doesn't have any interaction here anymore. Let me tell you, he rules and reigns the world today. Christ is the king of the world. You say, what do you mean the king of the world? I don't, I don't see a throne. No. no, there's no throne in this world. The throne is in heaven, but he does whatever he pleases, and he's the king of kings and lord of lords, and he is the sovereign ruler of the universe. There's a lot of people that would say, well, all things were created by him, and then wherever he went, whatever he's doing, he doesn't have anything to do with human affairs anymore. Listen as this sentence continues. That are in heaven, 
things that are in heaven. Things that are in earth were created by him, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Now we have principalities, thrones, dominions, powers. Some of these terms overlap, but these are various ways to express authority. Christ is the creator of all right authority in this world and in glory. You know what? He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. The reason that Christians submit to the powers that be is because Jesus established the powers that be. The powers that be, we think they answer to us. You know who they answer to? Jesus. Now, we don't like that because, again, why don't we like that? Well, because we believe that we rule the universe when Jesus rules the universe. Let me tell you something that will set you free from worrying about so much of the screaming, arguing, angry, hysterical debate that has existed every single day in this country since I was born. Jesus is the King of kings. He rules this country. He rules this world. I don't care what president, what party he belongs to. If he's a sorry wretch, guess who he answers to? Jesus. I guarantee you, Jesus is a whole lot more terrifying than I am. When Jesus comes back, there will be people calling on the mountains to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. I've yet to see anybody calling on the caves and the rocks to hide people from the wrath of Ben. Or they'll be hiding from Christ. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Listen, whether in heaven or earth, visible or invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, things that were, uh, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. All authority. There's authority that God has placed in the world in the form of government. There's authority that God has placed in the world in the form of the home. There's authority that God has placed in the world in the form of the church. And he's the head over all three. That's one of the words we'll consider next week. That he is the head. He's the head of the home. He's the head of all authority in this world. And he's the head of the church. Jesus is the sovereign Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's what people mean when they say that, though they forget what they mean when they say that. Now, because we have one minute according to that clock, and I usually set it a couple fast, not that it does really a whole lot of good, comment briefly. Whether they be in heaven or in earth, there's a structure of authority in earth. There's authority. Now, the powers that be are ordained of God, but men choose the form of government that best suits them. But even then, those that bear the rule are accountable to God, and they have a job to terrorize evil. If you wanted to know what government's role was, that's it, to terrorize evil, that you can live a quiet and peaceable life. But notice that these are also thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers in heaven. There is a structure, a hierarchy, if you will, of authority even among the angels. God is a God of authority. Now, you husbands and wives, there's authority in the home. There's structure in the home. There's authority and structure in the church. 
There's authority and structure among the powers that be. There's authority and structure among the heavenly host. For instance, Michael is referred to as the what angel? The archangel. That implies greater authority than other angels. After all, if everyone's the same rank, why give him one? Because he has a greater rank. That wicked one, the devil, is a fallen being. God created him upright as a servant, a cherubim, to do God's will in this world. When Michael dealt with the body of Moses after Moses died, according to Jude, Satan attacks him, and rather than issuing a railing accusation against Satan, because even though he's fallen, his rank apparently was greater than that of the archangel. You know what Michael says to him? The Lord rebuke thee. Let me tell you, there's great peace in deferring judgment to the one to whom judgment belongs, which is God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. God is not mocked. There's authority and rank and structure that God has made. By all and for Him, He is the Alpha, He is the Omega, He created the world, He is the heir of all authority. Human history is His story. All things in Scripture and all things in human history find their purpose in the Lord Jesus Christ. Say, Amen. I'm not convinced. Thank you. He is before all things. As the origin or the root, verse 17, he's the first cause of the universe. By him all things consist, that's not pantheism, this desk is not made of Christ. This de- desk is not made of God, but he upholds all things, Hebrews 1.3, by the word of his power. This universe exists, our world exists, we exist because it is his will for us to exist. We are upheld by the word of his power. He's the head of the church. In closing, notice this statement that we will consider next time. The body, he's the head of the church, the body, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. After reading that Christ is before all, All things were made by Him and for Him. He is the head. He is the authority. He's the express image of God. He's the firstborn, the heir of every creature. This is His world. He ought to have what? Preeminence. Let me end our message today on a question. Does the Lord Jesus Christ and His teaching have preeminence in your life? He's the head of the church, the body. He's the head of this world, the King of all creation. Does Jesus Christ have the preeminence in your life, in your affections, in your desires? I hope that answer is yes. And if that answer is sort of, then I pray that God would cause him to blaze so brightly in your heart that you can't but throw yourself at his feet in worship and adoration. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you, Lord, and we just give you the glory and the praise for this passage of Scripture. What a beautiful, awe-inspiring statement that your Son was sent into this world, the second person of the Godhead as the invisible God, that He is the firstborn, that all things were created by Him. He is before all things, and by Him all things exist and consist. Father, we pray that you would 
shine his light in our hearts and minds. Let us to see him and to desire to know more about him. For as we'll sing in a moment, one there is above all others, we would see him and know him and serve him. Burden our hearts, Father, to place him, tearing down all other idols on the altar of our heart in the position of preeminence that we would say, thy will be done, that we would seek you and serve you all the days of our lives. Forgive us of our sins, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.